Gospel of John. The Gospel of Belief. That's his purpose and method in writing. Uh, John gives us a very clear and decora uh, declaration of his intent. And so the method of his writing the book is John 20, verse 30 and 31. Uh, we were in that study uh, last week of the signs that Jesus did. Uh, John says in verse chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, the reason why he wrote it. Truly many other signs did Jesus in the presence of his disciples that are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that believing, you might have life in his name. Now, that puts no one outside the realm of understanding. The reason men don't understand is because they don't want to. They love darkness rather than light, to quote the scriptures. They so constantly, but what, my point is this. God has revealed himself in a way that man has no excuse for not believing. There is no excuse. There's nothing he can uh, use as a crutch to try to get a, avoid uh, the knowledge and the obedience to the truth. No way. Uh, and so don't you have any pity on people that you think uh, didn't understand or, or didn't have the uh, pr privilege or the uh, time to learn. Don't ever have pity on them. They're there because they want to be there. The Lord said they have an eyes to see. They refuse to see. They've got a serious problem. You don't. They do. And so it's time that we gird up our loins and quit feeling sorry for these people. We want them to be saved. The Lord wants them to be saved. He's not willing, the scripture says, that any man perish. But you can't do anything about their salvation. They've got to choose to want it. They've got to see and know. And they can because God has revealed it in a way that everyone can. Anyway, that's why John writes. And uh, last week we were looking at these outstanding words that's used in his uh, statement of why he wrote the book. Truly, many other signs did Jesus, there's the signs, Jesus in the presence of his disciples, uh, that you might believe that he's the Christ, the Son of God, and believing have life. And so we're going to, we were discussing the signs last week. Uh, we're coming to understand what signs are, and, uh, and then belief and life, those words in the Greek and what they mean. Because they mean a little different than what the English means. They mean a little different than what you've been taught that those words mean. And so in your digging or studying the Word of God, it's imperative that you go a little deeper than just on the surface. And the man who is really hungering and thirsting after righteousness will look deeper, won't he? This shallow idea ain't going to get you anywhere. Does it get you anywhere out in the world of making money? In the business world? 
Can you establish a business and keep it running and flourishing and developing, uh, being just kind of haphazard about it? You dig in, you search, you look. And so it is with understanding the Bible. And so we begin where we left off last week in those signs. Now, you remember last week, if you look in your notebook, and everybody has a notebook, don't they? Everybody has a notebook and a pencil or two in case one don't work. Because we're dealing with life itself and the understanding of it. Well, last week, remember, look at your notes. And we listed the signs that Jesus did. Uh, now, last week we looked at this point. I want to bring it out one more time. John presents the miracles that Jesus did, not merely as supernatural deeds. And that's all the world looks at. Yeah, you're just supernatural, you know. You're just... Was there a purpose behind it? Was there a reason why he performed miracles? It was to prove he was the Son of God. He came to this earth for that very purpose, to prove who he was, that we might have faith in him and be saved eternally. All right, so uh, John records these not merely as supernatural deeds, but as material witnesses. So these signs are material witnesses uh, 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 to uh, underlying spiritual truths. All right, so we was looking at them. We see them as signposts along the way. As we travel through John, we see these signs. Each of these seven signs that we had on the board last week, and you got in your notes, hopefully, those signs revealed some specific characteristic of Jesus' power and his person. And so these signs preach, don't they? Absolutely. Uh, and we give them in order as they're presented in the Gospel of John. Uh, the first one is changing the water into wine, uh, chapter 2, verse 1 through 11. And in this uh, first miracle that he done in his ministry, Jesus revealed himself as what? The master of quality. That's why he done that. He made wine that even the wine taster said, no man waits till the end of the marriage to, after men have drunken and, and coated their their tongue by drinking a whole bunch. No man does that. He serves the best wine first and after their palate has been coated with wine, then he slips in the bad wine on them. And here the wine taster said, hey, this wine at the end of this marriage is better than any wine. They was amazed. And so Jesus showed his master of quality by affecting instantaneously the change that the vine produces over a period of months. And he took water and changed it. All right, number two. Uh, John presents the healing of the nobleman's son in chapter 4, verse 46 through 54. And by healing the boy who was uh, 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 
He was more than 20 miles distance from, from him. Jesus showed himself the master of distance and space. Remember his father told Jesus, I'm a captain. I order men and they go off and do it. And you don't have to travel down there, just say the word. Now that fellow believed, didn't he? And Jesus said the word 20 miles, boy was 20 miles away. And when you read the account, uh, that father seen his son was healed, and he asked his servants at what hour yesterday was that boy healed. And it was the very hour that Jesus spoke to this man. And so he proved himself master of distance and space. And then number three, there's a story or the revealing of the, of the healing of the impotent man. Chapter 5, verse 1 through 9. Uh, now, the longer that a disease affects a man, the more difficult it is to cure. Example would be when you see somebody who has been lame all of his life, his legs are about that big around, and they're purple. You, you understand. The disease, the more you ha longer you have it, uh, it's more difficult to cure. Well, Jesus, by curing instantly an affection of 38 years standing, uh, he became and proved himself to be the master of time. And then number four, John reveals the feeding of the 5,000. That's chapter 6, verse 1 through 14. Uh, by multiplying the five uh, flat loaves and two small fishes of one boy's lunch into enough to feed 5,000 men besides, not counting, women and children. Now, if you got 5,000 men there, what size would you say the average family was? Because the women and children were there it, they just weren't counted. But the men were, there was 5,000 of them. And so, if you take somewhere around five or six to the family, you've got upwards of 30,000 people there that eats of five loaves and two fishes. Uh, so in that, Jesus showed himself to be the master of quantity. Not only the master of quality, but the master of quantity. Now, I've got to deal with this while we're right here. Jesus did not feed these people just to satisfy their hunger. On one occasion, he scolded the disciples when they uh, spoke to Mary Magdalene, I believe it was, uh, because she bought this expensive ointment and with tears in her hair, she wiped and dried his feet because she was anointing him for death. She knew he came to die. And the disciples said, uh, couldn't that have uh, been sold, that expensive ointment that you used there? Couldn't it have been sold and, uh, and, and uh, give to the poor? And what was Jesus' response there? Oh my goodness, we got to take care of the poor. He said, you have the poor with you always, but me you don't. And she was anointing him for death. 
And so he scolded them. The point is, Jesus didn't come to relieve pain, and he didn't use those miracles to relieve pain or feed the poor. That was not his purpose. He wasn't satisfying their physical hunger. Because when you read the record, what happened afterwards? Oh, boy, howdy, they poured out, and uh, he sailed across the Sea of Galilee in, in the middle of the night, and they went after him. Why? Well, just like people do today, you go to feeding them people down on Skid Row, and they follow you, won't they, for the groceries? And so that's what happened there. And Jesus used that occasion to teach them uh, that their hunger was for the wrong thing. It was for the physical appetite and not the spiritual appetite. But he didn't set out to just feed the poor. He didn't go around to this village and feed all them thousands and go over here and feed all them thousands. That was not his purpose in feeding that 5,000 on that occasion. We've got to see that. Otherwise, when you're out here preaching or talking to a friend or something, you're telling them about this incident, you know what their response is going to be? What do you think their response is going to be to you? You're trying to teach them the truth. And, of course, this miracle is the truth of John, that Jesus did this. But what is their response going to be when you just leave it in the air as though Jesus was feeding the hungry? They're going to ask you, well, why isn't he feeding the hungry now? If he's God, if he's divine, how come he ain't feeding them today? And you've got a problem on your hands. Jesus didn't come to feed the physical man. He come to feed the spirit with the word of God. It has life in it. And so where does that leave all these churches that thinks their mission is to have a benevolent fund and help the poor and all that stuff? Kind of leaves them out there in left field, doesn't it? They don't have any ground to stand on. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying we're not to have compassion. We are, but that's an individual. That's a Christian, individual Christian responsibility. Now, we can do it collectively, too. That's true. As a congregation, <laughs> if the need is that big. Because that's exactly what happened uh, with uh, Corinth and, and Thessalonica and them other uh, Asiatic churches that Paul addressed. Remember 1 Corinthians 16, 1 and 2? Paul talks about a collection that he's going to pick up when he comes through. It was for the poor saints of Jerusalem. But that was a one-time event. It wasn't an every week, every year, the rest of your life, taking up a benevolent fund for who knows what. And here it lays, and we begin to wonder, what are we going to do with this money? And... The children of the congregation here is dad and mom. What are we going to do with all this money? Me, me, me. And first thing you know, when they grow up, uh, you know, I need some money to pay my phone bill and my insurance policy and all the other things. You've created a Frankenstein, and you have no biblical basis for it. And so when Jesus fed the 5,000, not counting women and children, 
He'd done that with a, de a determined purpose to show them that they looked for physical and not spiritual. I think that's clear enough. Number five. The walking on the water that John presents in chapter 6, verse 16 through 21. This miracle demonstrated his mastery over natural law. <laughs> over the laws of physics. Nobody walks on water uh, the way he did. Number six, the healing of the man born blind. Chapter 9, verse 1 through 12. The point of this miracle is not so much the fact that Jesus healed a difficult case as that he did so in answer to the question as to why this man should have been affected. Afflicted. Uh, so, when you read it, the apostles asked Jesus right off the get-go, is this man, was he born blind because of his own sin or because of the sins of his parents? And Jesus said, neither. Neither. But that the glory of God might be manifest. And so there was people that had demons back in that period of time. And we don't understand a whole lot about the demon possession, but they had demons so that Jesus could show his divinity in casting them out and showing his authority over demon, the demonic world. So don't have a runaway because you read something about demon possession. <laughs> Here was a, a, a similar case of a man that was born blind. And Jesus had to explain to him very clearly, this man wasn't born blind, but he wasn't born blind because of his sin or because of his parents' sin, but rather to manifest the glory of God. This is God's world, and he came to it to prove who he was, and he did. And a lot of things were set up, staged, as it were, so that he could. All right, and so thereby, Christ, by that miracle, showed that he was master of misfortune. Number seven, the raising of Lazarus. Chapter 11, verse 1 through 46. Now, this miracle indicated that Jesus uh, irrevocably was the master of death. And we've looked at that quite a bit. So, these seven miracles that we just went through, these seven signs, then are uh, they're preeminently signs because they point uh, to those aspects of Jesus' ministry in which he demonstrated his transcendent control over the factors of life and with which man is unable to cope. So he showed his power. He showed his divinity. Quality, space, time, quantity, Natural law, misfortune, and death circumscribes uh, humanity's world, doesn't it? Those are the things that we have to uh, deal with, uh, that we're confronted with. And Christ's superiority over them, as revealed by these events called signs, 
was proof of his deity. You know, I get tickled every time I think about the devil's limited power. He would love, his whole desire is to destroy humankind. He's doing, he doing a fair job of it, isn't he? Not because God is not powerful, but because we're wanting him. We, we agree with him. God's word teaches against public school. But man, oh, we got to have public school. It babysits my kids. <laughs> and so you got a pervert up there teaching your kids. Is that correct? <laughs> so our problems are our invention. And God has warned us. He's, uh, if we stay with his word, we'll, we'll survive, won't we? So these are things that uh, uh, these signs were to prove that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of God, proof, proof, of, proof of his deity. Now let's look at the second word that's used in John's purpose in writing. He said, Truly many other signs that Jesus present his disciples not written in this book, that you might believe. Let's deal with that word. In the Greek, there it is, P-I-S-T-E-U-O. That's the sounding of the Greek word. That's not the lettering because they have a different alphabet than we do. But that is a sounding of that word in the Greek. John says these signs are written that you may believe. Pistuchio. That word is to be persuaded of and hence to place confidence in. It means to trust to commit oneself to. And that's what the Christian does. He commits himself to the Lord and to what his teachings are because he believes. Uh, he places confidence in the Lord because he has been convicted <coughs> by these signs that John records in his gospel along with all the rest that, John, uh, that the Bible presents. So they're persuaded of. They're, uh, they place confidence in uh, they trust, they commit oneself to, to, and that's the definition of that word. Never does it mean, now listen close, never does this mean belief mean a mere assent to a proposition. It's always conjoined with obedience every single time. You read your Bible, you notice that belief is used in the Bible, this petusio, as a convicting thing that causes people to uh, come into obedience and compliance, too. Uh, it's not just to believe, to assent to a proposition. Now, there's a lot of things out here that doesn't require anything of me. Uh, does the moon disappear sometimes? That's a fact, isn't it? And they call it an eclipse. That's a fact. But that's all it is to me. It don't require of me anything. It don't demand of me anything. There's no reward whether I know it or I don't know it. But listening to Jesus, it calls on me and compels me to become a believer in obedience to his word because the end result of his word is life eternal. I 
think we get that point. Uh, I won't stress it any further. So belief is always conjoined with obedience. Now the word life. John used that. He said there's the end result. Believing in the, uh, is the means to a greater end. And that end is life. Now, belief implies some things we're going to look at here. Consciousness, contact, continuity, and development. This would be a definition uh, of that word life, wouldn't it? Because that's what life consists of. <coughs> you know what amazes me? Uh, we get about 25 years old and we think, yeah, I know what life is. <laughs> I know what this is and that is. And we don't have a clue. We don't have a clue. We've been taught a certain aspect about it, about life. But do we understand all of its perimeters? All of its uh, its dense, I mean, its, its depth? No, we don't. That's why we have to educate ourselves. And you have at your fingertips... Uh, the uh, definitions of these words as they're used in the Bible, as well as you got Mr. Webster to help you out quickly and people like him. All right, so life. John says uh, in chapter 20, verse 30, 31, that believing you may have life in his name. Now this completes the definition of John's purpose. His purpose is to get you to believe by the signs that he records that you might believe and, and have life. Believing is not sufficient in itself as the fulfillment of the purpose. Believing is the means to a greater end, and that's life. Now, we just assume that life is here. We just take it for granted. But do you know the ungodly is coasting on the grace of God? Did you know that? Because life consists of His Word and His breath. What does it say in Genesis about God making man? He breathed into His nostrils the breath of life. Oh, that's just in there, you know. It don't mean nothing. It certainly does. It means that life comes from the giver, God. Now, let's take that a little further. What about these stupid people that believe in, in uh, abortion? And they argue about when life begins and what it's about and all that. They don't have a clue, do they? God told Jeremiah in the first chapter of Jeremiah, I knew thee the night thou was conceived in thy mother's womb. Was God in that bedroom when his mother and dad had sex that brought about his birth? That's exactly what it's saying. God's the giver of life. He breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life. When does a baby make the transition from the womb to this world that we know as life on earth? When does that take place? When the doctor slaps him on the butt and he gets his first breath. 
because God breathes into those little fellas the breath of life. The word life is the Greek word zoe, Z-O-E. It means more than animal vitality or the course of human existence. It means much more. There's people that exist that are what we call, and the movie industry is called, the walking dead, the living dead. They're dead and just don't know it yet. Their life is going to burn out like the stars in the sky. <laughs> Through time, they burn out. Because life comes from God's Word. It doesn't come from medicine. Amen. Now, medicine can help you. I'm not talking against medicine. But I'm, we have this, but medicine has its limitations, don't it? God's Word doesn't. It leads to what? Eternal life. Eternal. Not just, well, a few more days. Take this medicine. You might live another ten years, five years. And so the word Z-O-E in the Greek means more than animal vitality or the course of human existence. It was carefully defined by Jesus in John 17 and verse 3. He said, And this is life eternal, that they should know the only true God and Him whom thou didst send, even Jesus Christ. There's life. That's life in His name, isn't it? Is there anybody going to get to heaven without uh, acquiring that life? No, they won't enjoy any of it. They won't get there. They'll be recipients of the wrath of God. And you know why he's wrath? It's not because he's an old fuddy-duddy. It just wants to punish people. It's because they had opportunity to learn, to know, to grow, and they just didn't. And the sad thing about it, in the church of our Lord, there's a lot of people that have sold themselves on just coasting through. Well, you know, I'm as good as John and Jack. You know, I go to church. I go to services. and Why? And I give a dollar here and a dollar there once in a while. Why? Why would he be mad at me? No love for God. No love for the truth. No drive with a hunger and a thirst for righteousness. Just old mundane Merle, you know, just wandering through life. And there's a lot of people in the church that's going to be surprised on the day of judgment. I wonder if they'll hear those words, enter thou into the joys prepared for you from the foundation of the world. I don't think so. If it costs the preciousness of the Lord's life, don't you realize it ought to cost the preciousness of mine too? After all, don't I have a cross to bear? Don't the scriptures talk about that? Doesn't it talk about me in Romans 6 being baptized into his death and his burial and his resurrection? Have you ever stopped to give that some consideration? There's a responsibility. 
attached to that. There isn't any endeavor. You go into the business world, and if Christians performed on their job or in their business like they do in Christianity, they'd go broke tomorrow. If they use the wisdom in uh, seeing to the leadership of the church like they do their businesses, they'd go broke tomorrow. So it's just, with religion, it's just, well, I got my family and my, all our butts up there in the church. Ain't that enough? No, it's not. <laughs> no, I don't read that anywhere. That isn't the message I get anywhere. So, so life defined possesses various elements. Number one, it implies consciousness. Right here. I want you to be able to get this outline in your notes so that you can go home and study it this and, uh, as you're studying at home on the Gospel of John. It implies consciousness. Uh, so life implies consciousness for there is no knowledge without conscious existence. There isn't. Further, it signifies contact. Life does. For one cannot apprehend these things with which one has neither direct or indirect contact. You see why Jesus came and revealed the Father to us? It, we, we made contact, didn't we? I should say he made contact for us. Because he traveled from the Father and that was his job, wasn't it? Remember John 1.18? No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth, He has declared Him. So when Jesus walked this earth, this planet, everything He done was a declaration of God Almighty. Because He was God. We'll see that when we get through the prologue. and uh, When we get into the prologue here in a minute, in a little bit, probably not... Not this morning. All right, again, it involves continuity or duration because knowledge of God presupposes coexistence with Him. And finally, the uh, life, the word life, assumes development since the knowledge of God must be a growing. Not a static thing. And that's what it is with many professing Christians. It's static. They'll come and listen to somebody like me. <coughs> I heard, I heard. No, it didn't soak in. You didn't take it home and, and, and uh, make yourself learn it. You just, I sit there and heard that fellow. That ain't going to get the job done. That's static. Ain't going to get the job done. Don't fool yourself. I deal with pistols and rifles. And I'll read something two or three times to get a hold of what it's saying about those pistols and rifles because I like that. I'm into that. I have a desire to know about guns. I'm just using that as an illustration. That that's the way we ought to be about the Word of God. 
Jesus said that the kingdom is made up of what kind of people? Matthew 5. And one aspect in particular, he said they hunger and thirst after righteousness. Now, if you got a Bible class going, a teacher may not be very good. That's true. We're just men. We think of clay. We do the best we can. But don't you think that somebody who hungers and thirsts after righteousness would be here? If nothing else, just to uh, contribute their part to the class and to the knowledge that's uh, being distributed and to the help of others. But we don't look at things that way. We have more important things in the world out here. We got to get on with our life. And, uh, yeah, I give a dollar and I drank juice and eat the bread, but I didn't care for the, for the sermon, so I just got up and left. Boy, that's quite an attitude, isn't it? That isn't the man of God, is it? All right. So uh, the word life implies or assumes development since the knowledge of God must be a growing, not a static thing. That's the way it is with our earthly fathers, isn't it? It's a growing thing. It's not static. And so eternal life, man's full destiny, is the objective of the teachings of this gospel, the gospel of John. So is there any excuse for man not knowing God or recognizing and obeying the gospel? Is there? Let me present some scripture that proves it. There's many scripture, but I'm just going to use four here. Acts 17, verse 30 and 31. <coughs> on that occasion, Paul is standing on Mars Hill, and he is speaking uh, to those Greek philosophers. And they're very religious people. They had uh, statues to all of their gods, Zeus and well, we could go on with the names of them if I could call them. I recall them, but I can't. And they had one statue there that uh, was to the unknown God. And the reason it was labeled unknown and the reason they had the statue there is because of their superstition. They was afraid they might be a God they didn't know about yet and they didn't want to offend him. And so they're paying tribute to the unknown God along with the others. And Paul said, I see you're very religious. And I see you got a statue there to the unknown God. Let me declare him to you. See, and he's the God that created all things. And he goes through a definition or a... Uh, that's, that'll, that'll do. He goes through a definition of God. He's the creator. He's the designer. He's the one... He don't need anything from you. You can't do anything for him. You get that? Because we've got teacher's manuals in the Church of Christ saying, the cost of discipleship. Now, if you bought a piece of land out here for $5, and it's worth $20 million, what do you go away talking about and rejoicing over? 
what you got, not what you, oh, I had to give five dollars for that. But that's the kind of Christianity that's going on nowadays. Oh, the great cost of being a disciple. It brings in more than it costs, don't it? I mean, it's cost if you want to look at that. On my part, giving my life, I'm giving it for eternal life. Where's the value at? And what was given to me? So, in Acts 17, verse 30 and 31, Paul says there that there's no excuse for not believing. He says, truly, uh, he says, uh, at one time God winked at the ignorance of man, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. Why? For he has appointed a day in which he will judge this world in righteousness by that man whom he has ordained. Wherein he's given assurance unto all men in that he raised him from the dead. Now what's the assurance there? The resurrection. Can the devil ever destroy the resurrection? No, and he don't even try. Because he he's not that stupid. He's not stupid. He don't try to destroy the resurrection. He just keeps you out of the baptistry saying, Oh, that you don't pay attention to that water salvation stuff. And there's where the resurrection takes place, isn't it? Because the old man goes in, Romans 6, 3 through 6, and the new man raises to walk in newness of life. Somebody died there. Who was it? The old man. So Paul declares that man is without excuse because God has a, a given assurance Unto just a few fruitcakes like us. What did that verse say? He give assurance unto all men. Every one of them. Is there anyone outside the reach of all? He give assurance unto all men. In that he raised him from the dead. So what's the assurance? The resurrection. Because God's all powerful. Do you think that man or the devil through man can ever destroy the concept of the resurrection? Never. Never. You think God crucified his son and is sitting up there, oh, I sure, so, I sure hope they don't destroy <laughs> all of that. That cost me. No, I don't think he has that problem at all with his awesome power. Now, uh, Romans 1.4 Paul begins the profound book of Romans with this statement that Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by, with power by the resurrection from the dead. <coughs> now look at that word declared. Think about who's declared it. God did. You think anybody's going to offset that and confuse it? No. He declared Jesus to be his son and the savior of the world. How? By the resurrection. What do we celebrate up here? His death, burial, and resurrection. Where's our hope in the resurrection? You read 1 Corinthians 15, and Paul's dealing with the resurrection there, and the implication, if you 
don't accept the facts of the resurrection. He said, then our preaching's vain. You're of all men most miserable because you're, uh, you need to get out here and enjoy life to the hilt if there is no resurrection. Sin is very pleasurable, but it's only for a season. It has a short life. Second Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. 2 Thessalonians 1, 7 through 9. And to you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels. So we'll see those angels that, that uh, Elijah uh, opened the eyes of his servant to see. And the mountains and the hills and the valleys was full of angels. With their knuckles white as they gripped the sword of death. And they were waiting for an order to destroy the world at that time. The Syrian army, particularly. Oh, I reveal from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Now they had a church over here advertising for several years the laughing Jesus. You see him laughing here? You see him laughing anywhere? Isaiah 53 says he's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And they're advertising him as the laughing Jesus. What is there to laugh about back down here? Do you know? In flaming fire, he's coming, taking vengeance. Oh, that's a bad word. Oh, preacher, don't use that word because that sounds bad. Vengeance. Yeah, he's taking vengeance on them that know not God. There's no excuse for not knowing God. See, that's number one. Number two, and that they obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's no excuse for not knowing God and not obeying the gospel. There is no excuse. And don't you make an excuse. You might have loved your mother, your father, your aunt, your uncle, your cousin, your brother, your sister, your son, your daughter. But don't ever begin to rationalize. Well, they were such good people. I'm sure God has a place for them. Not outside of Jesus, because Jesus said in John 14, 6, I'm the way, I'm the truth, and I'm the life. And no man comes to the Father but by me and by my word. So don't you be guilty of trying to justify somebody because they was a good person in your sight. Or because you're claiming ownership because they got your blood running in their veins. And they died. Not believing, not obeying. Uh, so he says, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction? What about these people? Punished with how long? Destruction? Everlasting destruction. What's the nature of the destruction? From the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power. The presence of the Lord? I don't want to be outside His presence, do you? And the glory of His power? 
Man, oh man, we could spend the next, this next week talking about the glory of his power that you and I take for granted every day. Have you ever looked at a glass of water as simple as it may seem and thank God for that glass of water? Not counting steaks and potatoes and not counting a good night's sleep and a repose and warm bedding and all that. My goodness. We are the recipients in every way of a good and gracious God. Alright, one other passage, Romans 1, 16 and 17. Paul's prospectus. He said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it's the power of God and salvation. Everyone that believeth to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For therein, in the gospel, is contained a righteousness from God. It's not yours. It never will be yours. It was his and he gave it to you. What do you think about that? A righteousness from God. Uh, verse 17. For therein is contained a righteousness from God that's enjoyed on the basis of faith, not works. And Paul proves it from the Old Testament. He said even back then, God hadn't changed. He hadn't changed. He hadn't given us something that's altogether different because he quoted, he quoted in Habakkuk 2, 4. The just shall live by faith. Life is a consistence, is the product of the consistence of our faith, our belief in the Lord. Well, our time's up. And uh, we got through that segment. So next week, we want to look at the divisions of action. And I, I hope you get this down so I don't have to write it again. The divisions of action in the book. This is the outline. And here it is. And if you can't write very good, you got cameras. Take a camera and take a picture of the board. And you can enlarge in it and see everything in it. Thank you.